0: Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty, the Armstrong and Getty Show.
1: Uh, yeah, Bill Maher is becoming one of my favorite conservatives. He and I disagree on the size and scope of government, and a lot of other things. But when I watch his Friday night show, he's regularly saying what I am thinking about a number of topics, and on this one, it had more to do with. The way we're spending money in the economy.
2: And looking at the economic factors right now, it feels like we're back in that headspace that will never run out of cash as long as the Fed doesn't run out of ink. I'm just saying, if we're going to do a new Roaring Twenties, let's do it this time without the two things that made the last one suck. Prohibition and a depression at the end of it. (laughs) I am no money expert. I only turn on Jim Cramer to scare away the birds. (laughs) But it does seem like the market is a little divorced from reality these days. It's odd that the real economy has been full of news of unemployment, bankruptcies, and going out of business signs since COVID hit. And yet the S&P is up 76% in that time. It can't go on forever. We can't all win. It's not the ticket machine at Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) A share of GameStop isn't really worth more than a share of Toyota. To bail ourselves out of that depression, we spent over 10 years, over 10 years, 6% of our gross national product. To get out of COVID, we spent in one year, 26%. The way we're handing out money, you would think it had an expiration date on it. In 2008, when the global economy was on the edge of collapse, Congress passed what was considered a massive bailout of 700 billion, so massive, Over a hundred protests broke out across the country. The Occupy Wall Street movement was born. Now, the word billion is so last decade. (laughs) Congress has passed six trillion to fight the war on COVID. Two trillion more than we spent to win World War II. You know, the big one. Four years of desperate fighting against a murderer's row of bad guys all over the world. And under it, not to mention this thing was kind of expensive to make. The bomb. All that. In today's dollars, four trillion. This, six trillion. Picture of a slacker on the couch.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how it's going to turn out. Neither does anybody else, but man, there's just, we're doing all kinds of unprecedented things. That's the stuff that worries me the most is the economists that say, you know, nobody's ever tried this before. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I think it's too late.
0: I'm half encouraged by the fact that even the WAPO was writing about this. Tony ROM, R-O-M-M. I don't know his act, uh, but he, he wrote a piece in the WAPO. Uh the headline is Biden to unveil major new spending plans as Democrats eye bigger role for government.
1: Yeah, I read that.
0: Yeah, and it's uh it's a pretty frank piece. About the tr- mind boggling amounts of money being spent and how the Democrats, what's the line I liked? Uh, blah, 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 uh, as well as the public's willingness to embrace the sizable tax increases on wealthy families and profitable companies that may be necessary to help finance the burst in federal spending.
1: But you've and got I- the spending and some of those stats that Bill Maher had there are just amazing. Um, you know, compared to other crises throughout history, including World War II, it's just absolutely amazing. But then you get, you know, you got all these unknowables that have never happened before. The number of people that are involved in the market that aren't professionals, um, and the way that's affecting everything, the way investing happens with the whole, you know, uh, computers investing a million shares a half a second and all that sort of stuff. All those things that are new. Who knows how that's going to turn out? Like Bill Maher said, and it's absolutely true. It's just part of life. Everybody can't win, and it doesn't last forever. But but we've been pretending like it is that way for quite some time when it comes to the stock market.
0: And the interest rates are already so low, we no longer have that as a tool if the economy were to sputter or falter or whatever. so Yeah, that's an experiment. I like this note we got from frequent and insightful correspondent Amani. Talking about our previous discussions of this, uh, the, another four trillion in spending. It's almost like we're wandering through a dense fog with very little visibility. And we know there's an edge of a cliff out there somewhere. Instead of using extreme caution and carefully feeling our way through it, we're sprinting, sprinting, blindly running full speed, hoping things work out. No one knows how this will end. Many Americans think this is scary, but I'm sure China's kicking back, grinning ear to ear, watching the show as they snack on a bucket of popcorn. We might be heading toward the point of no return. We don't know. Nobody knows.
3: Are we, the
1: the, the people that are okay with this believe that we're such a giant, powerful economy, and uh, you know everything's so good in terms of our growth that we can just absorb it. It's like if you're spending recklessly, but you got a really good income, you can cover it up. You can, you can absorb it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, experience has taught me both in, you know, real life and politically speaking that there is always an unknowable twist out there. You think you have all the facts, but you don't. Something is going to happen that fundamentally alters the trajectory of this of what you think is going to happen. And it's almost never like so great, everything is perfect. What do you it's usually do? an impediment.
1: What do you do if you have a world war on top of this? You're already in this position or, or another pandemic or whatever. If we had another pandemic, it was worse, which is not impossible. What are you gonna, how many how many trillion dollars are you going to spend then?
0: Some and, sort of tech driven, perhaps uh, evil agent uh, driven collapse of the banking system. Right. I don't know.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah, the possibility yeah. of things falling apart does always exist. But it seems like we're just well, if you've ever been on the edge financially, and luckily I haven't been for many many years. But if you're walking along the edge, it only takes you know uh, your car breaking down to push you into some really bad territory.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, And to, I hate to use the incredibly worn-out metaphor, but it's like we're intentionally spending every single buck in our credit limit on our credit cards. Every single credit card is at the limit. And if we get any money, we immediately spend that to make sure we're still at the limit. And then thinking, yeah, but things are good. We'll be fine.
1: I don't know. what's. Uh, oh, and his what's, stuff about the Roaring Twenties was kind of interesting, the setup to that. Uh, because I've I've heard that term uh, a lot in the recent week about you know this could be another Roaring Twenties because the previous Roaring Twenties from the 1920s was also coming out of a pandemic and World War One and uh and and you know all kinds of sexual mores and partying and uh, wildlife spending I need a new this and that uh, be- became popular and are we about to head into that now or are we already are already there. Certainly the spending part. We haven't come yeah. out of the pandemic enough for people to run out into the streets and, you know, group orgies or whatever's going to happen. I don't know what the roaring 20s are going to look like this time around.
0: You know, uh, what I was starting to say earlier was that uh, politicians have figured out they're never called to uh, account for what they've done. They're they're never forced to take responsibility no. after they've lost left office and getty
2: jack armstrong and joe getty i
0: you let's go brandon the armstrong and getty show i was uh, listening to some rock and roll the other day and uh the who's won't get fooled again came on oh, some of the best lyrics ever written
1: it meet was, the new boss same as the old boss one of my favorite phrases
0: ever really the entire lyric is great it it got brutally overplayed in the seventies and eighties to the point that I never wanted to hear it again. But now I do want to hear it again because it's brilliant. And Roger Daltrey has uh, not one but two of the greatest screams in rock and roll history. And I was listening to that and realized I never had the balls to write a song that included
4: a scream like <laughs> that. <laughs> um, do they write that yeah. on the li- like? If I look at the lyric sheet, will it ah? Like, do, do they put that in the lyrics of the song, or is it just maybe something it just
0: that- says yeah? Although this is the kind of thing you work out in the studio, really. We yeah. need something here. Uh, but yeah, cause I can do a pretty good rock and roll scream, but never. Of course, my, my band is kind of more alt country than the Who, but anyway. Yeah. Aww. Sean, you had a, 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 a fabulous, hilarious party question before we get into the bulk of the podcast.
4: <laughs> yeah. This was, a uh, tweeted by stand up comedian Jessime Paluso. Hilarious. Uh, she asks all of her followers, if your genitals had a famous voice, who would it be? And she claimed that hers would be Angela Lansbury. Oh,
1: that's sophisticated. <laughs> what does that
0: mean? <laughs> sophisticated and old. You ever seen uh, Angela Lansbury when she was like first a movie star? Knock out. She's melt your face, beautiful. Really? Yeah. Oh my God, stunning. Like, is that a real human being? Almost like one of those Disney uh, cartoon princesses, where they're just too pretty. It's ridiculous.
1: Smoking. She wrote.
4: Oh yeah. Hat. Anyway. Uh, okay. So. be the dog. all right hi gills you don't (laughs) you don't want to again (laughs) i understand i won't i won't dignify this question (laughs) i will mine would be frank caliendo doing john madden wow yeah and i feel like that could also give me because now i got caliendo so i can pivot to all sorts of different impressions
1: going with a comedy routine yeah Uh, humor is sexy that reminds me of what were those guys that we had in
4: are you gonna Studio. T- are you gonna talk about the the puppets, puppetry the, of the, the penis? All right, jeez. Yeah, Did you they, ever see them? They they were uh yes, they were quite the thing in my early radio career. They uh, you were in not person? the only show that interviewed yeah. them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I Up didn't a try need. of
4: the penis.
1: God, we couldn't <laughs> oh, do that right now. That's right, they were Australian Aussies. Dude. Yeah, <laughs> we couldn't no. do that now, could we? They nope. they they did their thing. He 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 contorts himself into various things. The yeah. Eiffel Tower, the sailboat, <laughs> hamburger, baby bird. Oh, that's right. No, you were terrible. Oh hamburger. terrible. And, yeah.
4: and, and oh he did God. it in the so studio. disturbing.
1: And they put like, uh, well, we you know we don't want to offend anybody, so we like put a curtain over the glass and only. Co workers, women who wanted to see it came over and watched, and those who didn't want to see it didn't have to see it, which I actually think is perfectly reasonable. Sure, but of course. That's perfectly reasonable. Do you want to see a guy's penis? No, then don't come over here. If you do, <laughs> then look the other way. Um, right. But uh, yeah. but now you couldn't do that at all.
4: Canceled. Yeah. yeah.
0: So uh, the School of Rock reference was uh, Dave Grohl, I guess. Somebody I, asked him. To...
1: I, I don't like the tone of voice I used there. Maybe we should edit a different tone of voice. Because I, mean, I sounded like I'm really disappointed in America. <laughs> That comedians can't go around contorting their penises into shapes for workplaces anymore.
4: No, we're leaving that in. The tone was the tone was fine. (laughs) I act
1: like that's a real
4: wishes there was more visible penis
0: in American workplaces. No, but I can't use the same.
1: I can't use the same tone of voice that I use for the schools shouldn't be closed (laughs) for and men can no longer contort their junk. What (laughs)
4: happened to America? Exactly.
1: (laughs) I thought this was America.
0: Yeah, right, <laughs> Fair enough. So, somebody apparently asked Dave Grohl, uh, what three albums he would choose if he was doing a music class. I happen to see, uh, a chunk of the school rock the other day. The, uh, Jack Black movie. hmm. I've, I've never seen the whole thing. For the, the usual reason, I had a house full of babies when it was a big hit, but, um, it's charming. It's utterly charming. It's a good movie. I
4: can see why people like it. They've done some, uh, reunion concerts with the kids and Jack Black again and stuff too. It's oh, that's uh, fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Let's roll Dave Grohl
3: you're going to want to get the Beatles' Sgt. Peppers. One reason is because that album
2: still connects
3: the way it did the day it came out. Now, if you want to be a drummer, you're going to want to get the ACDC album Back in Black. That is like, that is rock and roll drumming 101. A third album, I do like to dance. Let's just go with Saturday Night Fever. Like, look, if you put Saturday Night Fever on, it's going to feel like Saturday night. It could be a Monday morning. So uh, I would have to go with those three albums.
0: Wow, that's kind of funny. Yeah, I would love to teach some sort of Worthless two credit college class about the uh, music, rock music, not anymore worthless than no, music.
1: I took a rock and roll history class in college. It was just a complete waste of time. The guy, mm. he was an old hippie. He, you know, his his teenage years were the '60s, and he just acted like everything the Beatles and Bob Dylan did was, um, the apex. Well, no, it was just he took it way too seriously. Changed I, I like, the world, yeah, it changed the world. And yeah. I, I like talking about music, I like music. Sure. Let's not pretend that we, you know, we cured cancer here.
0: With various right. songs. Yeah, the world seemed to do a pretty good job changing in the
1: 19-teens,
0: for instance. Yeah. 1936, uh, there were a fair number of changes, and Bob Dylan wasn't there.
1: Hey, the world I, just changes. Have you ever heard the Phil Collins-George Harrison story? I just read it yesterday for the first time. Are you aware don't of that? I think so. I couldn't I tell. I actually thought, I thought, is this like the story Joe said? Yeah, I heard that 40 years ago. Or So Phil Collins, when he was 19 years old, played bongos or little drums on a george harrison song george harrison one of the beatles when he when he his first soul album whatever it was mm-hmm. and uh so a night and he, any he, any and a 19 year old phil collins got invited to play i think bongos on one of the songs and 19 Jeez. and when the album came out phil collins who was a nobody uh heard it and the bongos weren't on there and he just ah crap you know they didn't use my they didn't use my stuff uh-huh. I didn't really think about it. Then he ends up being a big, giant star and meets George Harrison many, many, many years later, like 40 years later or something like that. Um, and it oh, couldn't have been that long ago because George has been a while. But anyway, it was decades later. Uh, he meets George Harrison. He says, hey, I know this is, sounds crazy, but I got to ask you. When I was 19 years old, I participated in the, this song, and I played the song and it never made the cut. And I don't know And he said. And George Harrison said, man, I got all the master tapes. Um, I could probably figure it out for you if you really want to hear it, um, wow. or ever and, <laughs> and Phil Constantine, that'd be pretty cool. So a while later he gets in the mail, he gets the master tapes of the recording session of this song and, and he puts it on and he listens to it. And at the end, it kind of, it's kind of stops at one point. And then George Harrison says, Hey, what is that noise? What is going on over there? And they said, Oh, that's the Bongus thing. He said, God, get rid of that. Whatever that is, that is terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> So Phil Collins calls George Harrison back and says, thanks for saying. It. He said, this is kind of funny. I don't know. Did you listen to that before you sent me in, George Harrison? No, no, I don't know. Um, he said, well, you actually are on there saying it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and then George Harrison lets him know that he brought in a band, re-recorded the song, like, the day before, and made all this up. He put in oh, some bongos, oh It was all and legit. then says, what are those bongos? That's <laughs> terrible. He just said, I don't have any master tapes of that stuff. What are you talking about? What? <laughs> oh,
0: my God. <laughs>
1: Isn't that fantastic? That is great. He went I'm, to all the work to re-record one of his famous just songs. Just a dick with Phil Collins. Like a cover band, just to pull one over on Phil Collins. I need mean to
4: drastically readjust my favorite Beatles rankings. That is a hilarious
1: yeah. joke. Oh my great, because it would take oh. a tremendous amount of effort unless you're a gazillionaire with a recording studio and sure. lots of musician friends, but how funny is that?
0: And the ability to replicate, you know, th- an incredible recording session, too, more or less.
1: <laughs> Those bongos suck. <laughs> That's freaking hilarious. I know it. That's one of the funniest pranks I've ever heard. <laughs> wow. That's
2: great.
0: Armstrong and Getty.
1: Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. want a personal privilege,
4: Don't personal. get brazen with me.
0: The Armstrong and Getty Show. Tim Sandifer is the vice president for litigation for the Goldwater Institute. He is the author of several excellent books, including more recently The Ascent of Jacob Bronowski, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass' Self-Made Man, and one of my all-time favorites, uh, The Right to Earn a Living. Oh, plus The Permission Society, which was inspired, he says, by conversations on this very program. Uh He is our smart friend. He condescends to speak to us. It's Tim Sandefur. Hello, Tim.
3: Hey, thanks for having me back on.
1: Oh, it's our pleasure. According to your avatar, you're still bearded?
3: Yes, that okay. is right. Nicely <laughs> trimmed this morning. Good Fantastic. lead
1: question, Jack. <laughs> Would you like to follow that up? <laughs> yeah, and actually, this is a pretty good lead question. So I'm looking at this poll that was taken right before Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, asking the public... How do you feel about the makeup of the court? Because that's what all this fight is about. This is why people get so worked up about it. They're worried about, you know, it's going to move too far this way or that way. So they polled people, and the plurality of Americans felt that the court was just about right politically. 42% said it's about right. A third said too conservative. 23% said too liberal. How would you uh, describe where the court was politically, is politically, and where it will be if Amy Coney Barrett gets on it?
3: The court was moderately conservative, and it will become a little bit more conservative. But the problem is that that kind of question is is basically meaningless unless you're talking about what issue, what legal subject you're talking about. Because, you know, these justices have views about criminal law that differ from their views about civil law or contract law or property rights and things. And those just do not break down into any sensible conservative versus liberal axis. So... The court in general will be more more conservative than it was before, but really what you need to talk about is what specific issues uh, will the court change on.
0: Right. It was interesting how you phrased the question, Jack, too, that uh, how will it be uh, now politically as opposed to judicially, and that is that is a thing that is smeared, whether intentionally or unintentionally, in the media, media that a, a liberal court could conceivably come up with I mean, a, an activist court could conceivably come up with outcomes that conservatives like politically. And a very conservative judge that thinks, you know, all in all, we ought to stay out of most things might yield an outcome that uh, that liberal voters like. Um, how
3: especially cra- because especially because a lot of conservative judges kind of pride themselves on not using their political views in their judicial decisions, justically, very famously so was of the view that you know, at, when I take my position as a judge, it's my role to enforce the law as written, even if I disagree with that law. And they, they kind of take it as a badge of pride. So it really isn't fair to, to, to characterize the court in broad political terms for that reason.
1: So uh, it's come up a bunch of times over the last couple of days that she is an originalist. What is an originalist?
3: An originalist is a, a, a person who believes that the Constitution should be interpreted in terms of how it was meant or understood in the 1780s when it was written or in the 1860s when the amendments are passed or what have you. As opposed to the idea that the meaning of the Constitution's text changes somehow over time or that it's, or that it is an abstraction, like a philosophical abstraction that a judge interprets. In in philosophical terms, so an, a written, there are different kinds of originalists, and so there are some who think that what's important is what the people per, individually thought when they sat down to write the Constitution in Philadelphia in 1787, and then there are others who say no, what what matters is what the average person would have believed the Constitution meant in the 1780s and so forth. So there are differences even within these these groups of of scholars. But in broad terms, an originalist is a person who thinks the Constitution me- means today what it meant when it was written.
0: Is uh, is a textualist an originalist, or is there a difference?
3: It, there are differences. Uh, okay, I mean, this it depends on who you ask. For example, I do not consider myself an originalist, but I do consider myself a textualist. What I mean by that is that I do think that the text obviously is what matters. and you're reading the Constitution, you have to understand what those words mean, not what you would like them to mean.
1: What they mean now or what they meant at the time? Because that can be different, can it?
3: That's exactly the problem, exactly the problem. So an originalist says, well, it means what they meant at the time. And a a textualist does not necessarily think that. So, for instance, Judge Gorsuch in the recent case about discrimination against uh, people who are married to members of the same sex in the Bostock case – Justice Gorsuch is basically a libertarian. He ruled that the 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 law does prohibit that kind of discrimination, even though nobody believed that at the time that that law was written. So that is a textualist argument as opposed to an originalist argument. He's not just making it up as he goes along, so he's not like a living Constitution guy, but he doesn't think that the meaning of the law is created by the uh, historical fact of how it was written.
1: Would the you know not to get too far off on the Second Amendment, but would the uh, the, the the founders who liked the Second Amendment would they uh, believe that a person could own their own cannon because that would have been the most powerful <laughs> weapon you could own in the world at the time I think is a
3: cannon. You know, I'm reminded uh, of uh, I had a professor who who from Russia when I was in college and he we used to speak about this. He said he said you know yeah I I have friends in Switzerland. Who really do have tanks in their garages because they're all members that are all you know required to serve in the military it's not a big deal there uh i think that the founding fathers would have thought that you have a right to possess firearms for self-defense and then when it comes to something like a cannon they would have said no
0: okay interesting tim is on the line from the goldwater institute talking about the supreme court in general and the nomination of amy coney
4: barrett uh, positive sean is now an appropriate time for your your question yeah sure um so, uh, just a point that I saw made on Twitter that I thought was interesting, and I, I would love to hear uh, your pushback against it. Um, uh, does an original list, since the Constitution and, ma- and maybe the, this premise is wrong, only mentions an army and a navy? Does that mean that the Air Force doesn't exist to a constitu or an original list? And if any rulings came about about that, they would have to say, "Well, it doesn't exist in the Constitution, therefore, no funding for the Air Force" or, or something like that. <laughs>
3: Yeah this is this is not at all a stupid question so congratulations John congratulations. Well, yes. I respectfully
1: disagree <laughs> but go on Tim in the case of really squirrel is- versus acorn <laughs> <laughs>
3: So the, the answer to that is if you are if you ask the best originalist thinkers out there, and that's people like Randy Barnett, his professor at Georgetown, his answer would be: we're not looking at the specifics of what was written in the Constitution, but at the principles that they wrote into the Constitution. So the fact that they said the armed forces in the Constitution means that whatever is in, is designed as an armed force falls within what the Constitution was originally meant at the time. That and maybe that's a persuasive argument. I actually don't think it's a persuasive argument for very sophisticated reasons. We probably don't have to get uh, get into. I do. I, I think the Constitution clearly gives Congress the authority to create an air force, but not because that was in the minds of anybody in the 1780s.
0: Okay. Does the Constitution, and this is more about Twitter than you, Sean? Does the Constitution actually specifically mention the army and navy at all,
1: or just armed forces? Yes, it. Uh, it does.
3: No, it says army and navy in some, in one place, and it says uh, armed forces in another.
1: Okay, mm-hmm. excellent. The unconstitutional air force doesn't
3: mention uh,
0: Elvis Costello's fabulous uh, album Armed Forces at all.
3: That's in that's in the the, the article twelve. <laughs> so that's what I thought.
1: <laughs> Let's get to where the rubber meets the road, or the sensible flats meet the uh, the black robe. In this case, mm-hmm. why has the Supreme Court become such a major part of American life in a way that it wasn't?
3: as much in the past why is everybody so fevered about it the short answer is abortion the long answer is the New Deal from the 1930s. So that what all of this is about the politics of abortion because of the Supreme Court decision Roe versus Wade in the 1970s. And since that decision, there's been a concentrated effort to get that decision overturned. And part of that has been to elect presidents who are going to nominate Supreme Court justices who believe that the Roe decision was wrongly decided. Now, of course, if Roe were overruled today, it would not ban abortion in the United States it would mean that it was up to state Supreme Courts to decide whether their state constitutions protect abortion rights. And several states already have done so. California, uh, Kansas, all sorts of states have issued decisions saying it doesn't matter what happens at the U.S. Supreme Court. Abortion is a protected right at the state level. So that's the easy answer. But the long-term answer is that ever since the 1930s, Congress has been given such expansive powers, powers that the Constitution does not contemplate, that it's become a really important priority to make sure that nobody gets on the Supreme Court who starts to say, wait a minute, all this stuff that the federal government has gotten itself into and state governments also in the past 80 years or so, there's no constitutional foundation for that. And it really conflicts with a lot of in the Constitution. So maybe we should rethink that. That would be very dangerous to lots and lots of bureaucrats and to lots and lots of people who get paid for not working from the federal government and, and state government. So they, it's very important that they prevent that from ever happening. So that's the, the and, and, and you know, what has happened then is Congress passes these incredibly broad, incredibly vague laws which then courts have to go in and figure out what they mean. So that means it's very important to control what goes on in the court.
1: Isn't that a lot of it? I mean, that's what Senator Ben Sass com- keeps complaining about Congress not doing their job. They leave it so open-ended, and they want the court to deal with it so that they don't have to.
3: That's exactly right, and, and he's totally right about that. Google, the, it's a, and they ever, of course, Congress has huge incentives to do that, right? Pass incredibly vague laws. That, that look like a good thing. And then you can go home to your constituents and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm a great guy. I did this, That uh, passed this great law. But it's so vaguely worded that there's no real downside at first. And then gradually, then it's the court's responsibility to figure out what these laws mean. And the court starts saying, well, gosh, this is a very good law. Well, by that time, you've passed the buck. By that time, you've already been reelected to Congress. So you don't have to worry about it. And if anything goes wrong, you can blame the judges. I have
0: a, a final question, but first uh, Tim, a glimpse into our lives we got the, we were talking about Ben Sass a great deal. We quoted him yesterday, got this uh, note from Jerry ha ha you said Ben's ass. Thank you, Jerry, for that contribution <laughs> <laughs>
3: Now, now see, now see, that is not a textualist interpretation of the thing.
0: All right, here is my closing two-headed monster of a question: What is the worst Supreme Court decision that has not been overturned? Uh, you can deal with that first if you like.
3: That would be Jones and Laughlin Steel versus National Labor Relations Board, which is the 1937 case that basically said that every single employment contract in the country can be regulated by the federal government.
1: Ugh.
0: And and secondly, did you watch any of the uh, confirmation hearing stuff yesterday?
3: Oh, God, no. Actually, I I watched about 30 seconds of it. But the problem is it's so horrible to watch when you are a lawyer and you care about these things because it's like watching a television channel that's devoted to nothing but filming children fighting at a school playground. (laughs) No, 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 that's not right, because it would be more like children who refuse to go to school. fighting on a playground.
0: Right, it's like watching CSI with an actual cop. They just spend the entire thing saying, oh, God.
3: Well, I love how they made a big deal about the fact that that she didn't have any notes on the desk in front of her. Like, what notes do you need to answer questions that stupid? Or questions that aren't even questions, these two or three minute long monologues that these senators are giving that aren't even questions that have nothing to do with her.
0: Well, it's clear you didn't watch yesterday. They got a half hour each, and some of the guys just droned on for an entire half hour and didn't even acknowledge the presence of the the young woman there at the, uh, the, the, the table so craziness. hey before,
1: before we run out of time do i remember correctly that you don't have a problem with uh uh just a simple majority for the senate to put supreme court justices on you said it's not in the constitution so you don't have a problem with it am i right about that do i remember that, that?
3: that's exact. yes that's right and in fact i i'm of the view that supreme court nominations ought to be more politicized than they are i think it's a shame that nominees are coached never to answer substantive questions about their views of the law, and that we then place these people on the court when without really a clear idea of what they in view the Constitution as meaning. And I, and I think it would be healthier for our society if we had much more lengthy and more political debates over who gets put on the court and who doesn't. Interesting. So I don't, I don't just, know how that would happen. Just
0: understand, you're not saying, how would you decide this case? More on what's your view of the Constitution, what's your philosophy, that sort of thing?
3: I would even ask a justice or a nominee what do you think that such and such a case ought to be overruled what do you think about this legal precedent I absolutely would. Yeah, and these are people who are going to have life tenure on the Supreme Court of the United States we should know what their views are of the constitution.
1: And expanding the Supreme Court how do you feel about going from 9 to 11 or 13 or whatever?
3: Well, I think there there's there's no constitutional reason why you can't do it in terms of, like, the text, but it's a really bad idea. That's, that really is a, the, a road you go down that ultimately destroys the constitutional system and turns everything into politics. And if you think everything ought to be politics, then, you're, you know, you have no reason to cherish the Constitution, And the only reason to expand, to pack the court, to expand the court and that sort of thing, is because your program cannot be justified in constitutional terms. And so you're saying basically, well, I've invented a new place. I'm going to throw out the rule book. And that's that's a really bad idea.
0: Tim, the lawyer, Sandifer, vice president for litigation, the Goldwater Institute. Uh, Tim, always enlightening. Thanks a million for the time. We'll talk again soon.
3: Looking forward to it, guys.
2: Armstrong and Getty.
0: Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Sure I the, the Armstrong and Getty Show. Judy and I went uh, furniture shopping yesterday. Need a little furniture for a guest room. And uh, we stopped in one of those places that, that has like handcrafted American mm-hmm. furniture first. And uh, oh my, I feel like, oh, here's a little drinking game. If you're listening to the podcast later on the day or whatever, uh, take a drink every time Jack states or implies that I'm a bad person. I really okay. like
1: well-made furniture. I get a kick out of it for some reason. I hand-crafted. do too. Ab- absolutely.
0: But this place, American handcrafted furniture, if I were to outfit like a living room, dining room, and bedroom, It cost more than my first house did. Oh yeah, that's, it's it's so expensive. And I said to Judy a couple of times, I appreciate it's American made. I really do. And it's, it's of great quality and I could hand it down to my kids and the rest of it. But good God, I
1: can't spend this on
0: a a dining room table. No,
1: I said, I really like it and I think it's cool. I don't buy it. (laughs) So then we went to a couple of things like that, but not many. We went to one of the cheap old places and I felt like, you know, the, 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 we were
0: looking at the bedroom set for our guest room because our furniture in there is just terrible. It's just, it's embarrassing. And, uh, and, uh, some of the cheap stuff, I feel like I could pull it apart like King Kong oh, yeah. and just smash it. So that's a little cheap. But, so we went kind of semi cheap. So if you ever come to my house and stay in my guest room, no, we just, we, we pretty much cheaped out on you. It's, it's not expensive, but.
1: We bought a number of things fairly recently that s- th- th- I think they're designed to be used as furniture, but they seem like they're designed to be staging furniture for a home you're showing to yes. not actually use it for anything. Cause you, oh God, it- don't open the drawers. Don't open no, them. No, it's like a movie
0: set. <laughs> right. It's, it's completely fake. But anyway, so the point of this is we go to, we finally find uh, like the the most expensive thing in the cheapo store. I figured that was a, a, a sweet spot. And uh, we go to check out. And the gal who was doing the
1: paperwork—I'd not run into this before. She had very ample bosoms. Okay, way to check out the rack on the salesperson, Joe, and with your wife there. Just well, she's fantastic. like there in
0: front of Oh, take a drink, everybody. So, um, <laughs> so she's sitting there with a low-cut blouse and her enormous bosoms. Oh my now, God! Here, here's you the having problem. a good time, Joe. Here's the problem: she had like a jewel placed. Right between her bosoms, like where you would tuck a pen or lipstick or something, she had a shiny jewel right there. Hmm. So why does any woman wear any jewelry? So it's looked at, and so she's got this shiny bauble right between her 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 tatas, and I'm thinking now I can't because it kept catching my eye. It's shiny, it's sparkly, and I like,
1: like ah, ah. That is a decent question. Why would you? Is there a name for that kind of jewelry? Is it called a necklace? Boob bobbles or a, a boobless? It's a necklace, but but if it's way down, actually between your. Because I've seen those; they're way down in the cleavage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But I'm are those designs, Are you supposed to look wild. at them? Or are you supposed to pretend they're not there? And if I, if you don't, if nobody looks at it, then what is the, what is the, what's the point of wearing it? Yeah. I mean, I'm a raving, flaming
0: heterosexual man. I appreciate women on every level. I'd like to think, uh, but I don't want to be a pig. I'm not Andrew Cuomo over here. And so I just, what, ladies, if you wear that,
1: what, what do you expect people to do? Stare at your boobs? If you or say least, nice. Necklace, is that like... Mm,
0: But it uh, got nothing to do with her neck. That's true. Um, what do you call, like, it's a brooch? Is there a name nice for that? Nice
1: boob brooch, text, ma'am. Text line 415-295-KFC. <laughs> <laughs> nice boob brooch, ma'am. Try that next time, and then you'll have another story for the radio. Very attractive. How does that
0: uh, stay in place? Is that just the, uh, just your, uh, mm, mm, yeah? Mm, that's nice. That's great. Very classy.
2: Armstrong and Getty.